Now, this is the first time I think that I've been invited to speak somewhere where the topic, the title of the talk was chosen before I had agreed to come and speak. Uh, but I think uh, the, the subject here, which was uh, sharing Christ on the wards. Now, you notice I've titled, entitled it a little bit different there because uh, as I thought of this, this was the solution or the answer that I came to. But I think this is a very important subject. And so I'd like to just share some, some thoughts that I have, and then I hope that we can have some discussion about this. Well, if we were going to, let's say, look in the Bible for our best example of how to um, share Christ on the wards with our patients, who do you think would be our best example, best person, best life to look at? Jesus himself, wouldn't it? So um, let's imagine if Jesus were here, if he were going to give this talk, what do you think he would tell us? Do you think he would um, give us a thousand specific examples on our words and actions? Would he say, um, now remember, when you introduce yourself to your patient, firm handshake makes a good impression, eye contact. Um, when you take a history, let the patient talk for about two and a half minutes, and then you can interject with some questions. Um, or do you think Jesus would try to change our hearts, our minds, so that we have internalized his love, and then out of that will come words and actions that, that correspond? I think he would work on the internals. It seemed like that's always Jesus' focus. And so um, what I would like to discuss is the ideal attitude, the ideal internal motivations that we have for seeing patients. And I believe that the root of our actions should be in harmony with this first passage that you have on your handout there. So I'd like to read this and then uh, discuss the implications. This is Matthew 20. The mother of James and John came to Jesus with her two sons. She knelt down and started begging him to do something for her. Jesus asked her what she wanted and she said, when you come into your kingdom, please let one of my sons sit at your right side and the other at your left. And Jesus answered, not one of you knows what you are asking. And of course, when the ten other disciples heard this, they were angry with the two brothers. But Jesus called the disciples together and said, you know that foreign rulers like to order their people around and their great leaders have full power over everyone they rule, but don't act like them. If you want to be great you must be the servant of all the others. And if you want to be first, you must be the slave of the rest. The Son of Man did not come to be a slave master, but a slave who will give his life to rescue many people. And I found this passage very interesting because I think what we see here is the contrast between the way that the world operates, which is, Jesus, can I be first? When you come into your kingdom, can I sit at your right side? Um, and here the mother of the two disciples saying, please put my sons first. Okay, me, 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 I want to be first. And what is Jesus' answer here? It's interesting, he says, that the way the world works is people like to get into the power so that they can order people around, right? But this is not the way my kingdom works. Remember, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. How does he describe his kingdom? He describes it as being service-oriented. His kingdom is based on other-centered love. It's completely the opposite of the way our world naturally operates. 
And so I'd like to give a number of uh, specific examples of this, but just to make the big picture, how do we know that this is the way his kingdom operates? Um, just consider God's great condescension. Okay, how does he come? He comes to earth not as a powerful king to intimidate us with force, to get us down on our knees. He comes as a baby. He comes to serve. And so I think, you know, if we just imagine, I don't know if we have any neurosurgery people here today. I don't think so. But uh, you may be the greatest, the most qualified neurosurgeon in the world based on education and all of other things. But um, could you, like Jesus, rewire the brain of a man born blind? Okay, I think Jesus is the best neurosurgeon, isn't he? I mean, he's the one who created the brain. So if Jesus comes, God comes in the flesh to serve, then you also, as a highly trained neurosurgeon, ideally should serve. Okay, he is our example. And so the point that I would like to, to leave with you and the conclusion that I've come to is that this service, this other-centered love, is it's just like a, a law of gravity. This is the way God has designed our universe to operate on this other-centered principle. And I think uh, we as healthcare professionals are very privileged because we are in the field that most naturally lends itself to this other-centered way of living. And I think that can make a very powerful statement when we live in that way, by the way we treat patients and so on. We are making a statement ultimately about our God, what He is like, but also about this is the way we should be living. We are other-centered. And so read the words here in Romans. Here, this is Romans 14 from the Message Bible, but I really like the translation. Your task is to single-mindedly serve Christ. Now, we'll see this relationship again and again, which is it's the back and forth. What does Christ do? He comes, he serves. He washes the feet of his disciples. He comes as a servant. Well, in that makes it pretty easy to serve someone, doesn't it, if they come and are kneeling at your feet. So it is a back and forth kind of a thing. We are serving a God who serves. Strength is for service, not status. I think that's worth reading again. Strength is for service, not status. So your great education allows you to assume the highest position in God's kingdom, which is what? That of a servant. Each one of us needs to look after the good of the people around us, asking ourselves, how can I help? And that's exactly what Jesus did. All right, now this next quote I find quite amazing. This is from Ellen White, but I think it is exactly on the, the point of what we're talking about here. And uh, she described it this way, unselfishness, which in the context she is describing service, other-centered love, unselfishness, another word for the same thing. Unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom. Notice not a principle, not one of many principles. The principle of God's kingdom is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. From the beginning of the great controversy, he has endeavored to prove God's principles of action to be selfish. And he deals in the same way with all who serve God. To disprove Satan's claim is the work of Christ and of all who bear his name. It was to give in his own life an illustration of unselfishness, of service, that Jesus came in the form of humanity. Now, how often have you heard it described this way? Why did Jesus come? Why did he die? 
Well, I think we could put it, this is a good way of describing it. It was to give in his own life an illustration of unselfishness that Jesus came in the form of humanity. And all who accept this principle are to be workers together with him in demonstrating it in practical life. So, unselfishness, service, other-centered love, uh, what would it be like if this were the guiding principle, the motivation, uh, the reason that we do everything that we do? Well, let me give some examples of this ideal. Um, let's think about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How do they interact? Okay, we see Jesus. Um, does he come to the earth and say, I'm God, I'm God, it's me, I'm God. No, he's saying, look to the Father. I've come to reveal the character of the Father. And when he left... He said, it's better if I go because then the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, can come. He's totally deferring to the other two members of the Godhead. Okay, what does the Holy Spirit do? Does he draw attention to himself? No, he's, looked, he's teaching us the truth about the Father. He's revealing to us about the Son. Okay, and what does the Father do? Well, in Philippians, he gives the name of Jesus a name higher than any other name. Right? So we see in the Trinity this ideal of other-centered love. I mean, it really is a model to us. Okay, I thought about also nature, especially prior to sin. Nature is a model of this other-centered serving principle. Um, just think of like an apple tree. Okay, what does an apple tree do? It, what does it do? It serves. Okay, birds nest in the tree. And for us, we enjoy its shade, its beauty. Of course, the apples, okay, it is there to serve. And requires minimal service back. Okay, a little pruning, a little water. All right, but we see in the ideal nature this same service model. What about Adam and Eve prior to sin? And God said, Adam, it's better that you not live alone. Better that you're not alone. Now, was this because Adam needed someone to serve him? Or is it not that Adam needed someone that he could serve? Right? And so ideally in a marriage, you have this reciprocal serving, other-centered, you know, two people come together and become one. So a marriage ideally should reflect the same kind of situation. Now what about children? I don't know how many of you have children here, but I mean, those first few years are very much, I mean, it is totally service. People, little people totally dependent on you just for survival. All right? So it is forced upon you, this service, during those years. But what happens? Parents get old, and who takes care of the parents? Children. All right? So it is always this reciprocal back and forth, back and forth. This is the way our universe is designed to operate. Well, I think it makes the point then that all law ultimately points to this rule of service. And look at the next verse there in Galatians 5. Instead, let love make you serve one another. For the whole law is served up in, is summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And can you imagine a world where everyone was just as interested in your own well-being as you are? Can you imagine a world in where everyone is there to help and to serve? Uh, I mean, would you need locks on your doors or anything like that? Or a world where everyone is putting the best possible interpretation on your words and actions. Okay, that would be a world where 
uh, we live in an other-centered uh, kind of uh, environment. And I imagine the ideal, uh, if the reputation of the graduates of Loma Linda University, I mean, let's just say the word on the street about Loma Linda graduates is, uh, boy, have you ever been treated by a doctor from Loma Linda? It's quite a special experience. I don't know, it's hard to put it into words. It just seems like uh, they're just so caring and so uh, service-oriented. Okay, I think that would be a great um, ideal, and that would say wonderful things not just about Loma Linda, but about the God that we believe in as well. So the other point I wanted to tie into this, besides the, the service aspect, is if you look through the best examples of who really lived this out, at least going through the Bible, uh, you'll notice that all of these people had great humility. Okay, who's a good example of this? Well, first let's read the verse here in 1 Peter. Do your work not for mere pay, but from a real desire to serve. And all of you must put on the apron of humility to serve one another. For the scripture says, God resists the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Okay, why does God show favor to the humble? Okay, because the proud person who's a leader, why are they a leader? It's because they want power. They want to push everyone else down and to build themselves up. Okay, so when you have a leader who is humble, why does a humble person become a leader? It's because they want to serve and to help those that they are leading. Okay, so God, I think God says, that's what I want. I'm looking for a humble leader because it's, those people are not out to promote self. Okay, who's the greatest leader in the Old Testament? Uh, I'd have to say Moses. And read the words here about Moses in Numbers 12. Moses was a humble man, more humble than anyone else on earth. And I always have to laugh, who wrote Numbers? <laughs> Moses. Um, would you write about yourself? You know, I'm the most humble person in the world. But, um, you know, it's interesting that back in this time, that is not something that you would uh, boast about. Well, I guess you wouldn't boast anyway if you were humble. But this was not necessarily a desired quality uh, during that time. And of course... What's that? that verse is in you don't think he actually wrote it? Well, I think it's in there. And I like the fact that if you read the Messianic prophecy here in Deuteronomy 18, I will send them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their own people. Okay, so the coming Messiah would be like Moses. In what way? Moses, the humblest guy on earth. Now, was Jesus also humble? Well, look at the descriptions here. He will not shout or raise his voice or make loud speeches in the streets. He will not break off a bent reed nor put out a flickering lamp. This is the God of the universe. He was treated harshly, but endured it humbly. He never said a word. He comes triumphant and victorious, but humble and riding on a donkey. And of course, Jesus says about himself, like Moses, learn from me because I am gentle and humble in spirit. Now, in your own mental picture of God, do you incorporate gentleness and humility into your picture of God? Okay, well, if Jesus is God, if he's a perfect representative of God's character, then God himself is gentle and humble, as amazing as that might seem. And so uh, we might ask, though, is this really powerful? Is service, is humility, is there really power that comes with that? But when we think about people like Moses and Jesus, I mean, the whole world changed because of their great service. 
and humility. And I think Jesus came to break this me, myself, and I self-centered way uh, that we are so attached to. Okay, the way that says, I am willing to kill you so that I can survive. I will condemn and criticize you to build myself up. This is the way that is so natural to us. And my son who's in first grade, uh, his teacher illustrates this quite well. Uh, when, when two children in first grade are fighting or arguing about something, uh, she says, uh, break the circle. And she's explained that circle to be a circle of hate and selfishness. And okay, break the circle. And they know right away what that means. And they're eager then to show an action of kindness or something to break you know, whatever it was that was going on at the time. So I think we, as healthcare providers, we are to live our lives in a way that breaks the circle of selfishness, self-centeredness. And I think uh, any our positions are just ideally suited for this. For example, a homeless man, let's say, comes into emergency room with an open wound. Okay, what's the ideal way he should be treated? Okay, he's treated by highly trained, educated physicians, nurses, staff. And what do they do? They treat him with dignity, respect, and service. Okay? Does it always work that way? Well, I chose this example because when I was a medical student, uh, fortunately rotating in the state of Washington when this happened, but it was a homeless man who came into the emergency room with an open wound, and the attending that I was working with at the time um, after treating this man, we walked out of the ER, and his comment was, uh, what a low life, but it pays the bills. Okay, do physicians sometimes have an arrogant, condescending attitude like that? Um, again, another example from no one around here, so uh, I think I can tell this, and it was about 15 years ago, but I worked with a, a doctor who trained at Johns Hopkins, and there was not a day that went by that he didn't tell someone, either medical student, resident, or patient that he trained at Johns Hopkins. And do you know who I am? You're very lucky to have me as a physician. That was very much the attitude. I remember I, I ignorantly called it John Hopkins without the S and almost feared I would fail the rotation. But um, anyway, that, does that attitude not come across somewhat as a physician, as a nurse? Are you here to serve or are you there, even as you're taking care of a medical problem, to be served, to have self uh, built up in the process. Now, I should say, I can think of many times where I've blown it and I've exhibited the wrong attitude, but I'm just trying to point out the difference between the two ways. Well, just in a few concluding thoughts, uh, these words in Matthew 25, even what is Jesus looking for in his people when he returns? And then the king will say to the people on his right, Come, you that are blessed by my Father. Come and possess the kingdom, which has been prepared for you ever since the creation of the world. Okay, who will possess the kingdom? I was hungry, and you fed me. Thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you received me in your homes. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me in prison, and you visited me. Okay, what is Jesus describing? He is describing people who are living out a service Life. That's what he's looking for in his people. Now, this next verse you won't find in your handout because I didn't want you to cheat and read ahead. Okay, but listen to the words here. And I just want you to imagine how you would predict this, this verse concludes. Okay, Jesus knew that the Father had given him complete power. 
This is one of those verses I'd read for a long time and then all of a sudden, you know, something just pops out and it's like, wow, I never picked that up before. Okay, Jesus knew that the Father had given him complete power. He knew that he had come from God and was going to God and so he did something. All right? Now, Jesus, in recognition of complete power, what would we normally think if, um, you know, if I stood here and said, God has given me complete power? Uh, wouldn't you feel a little nervous? You know, could I be trusted with all that power? All right, and in the context of what was happening, the disciples were again fighting about who would be first in the kingdom. Um, Judas had already betrayed Jesus. And so Jesus, in recognition of complete power, you know, wouldn't you think he's going to, like a good leader, um, give a stern talk to his disciples? Maybe resurrect a whole bunch of people from the dead or, you know, the Pharisees are knocked out in the dust or something like that. Incomplete power. All right? This is just how it continues. So, he rose from the table, took off his outer garment and tied a towel around his waist and he washed the feet of his disciples. Seems like kind of a strange action by our standards. But he knelt down, washed the feet of his disciples. Now, did he wash 11 or 12 pairs of dirty feet? Did he wash the feet of Judas? Yes. And amazing, incomplete knowledge here that the betrayer here has done this. He washes his dirty feet. Uh, I find that to be uh, just remarkable. And I always like to think about how he washed his feet. You know, did he squeeze until it hurt? Or, I mean, I, I imagine that he spent the most time washing the feet of Judas because um, here's his child. He's losing him. And um, this is his last opportunity really, to express his love for Judas. And I like after, you can read all this in John 13, but after he washes the disciples' feet, he stands up and says, now that you know this truth, how happy you will be if you put it into practice. What truth? I would say the truth that here the God of the universe comes and he just knelt down and washed a bunch of dirty feet. And if we realize that is the truth about our God, this is the way our God wants us to live. That is an incredible truth. And finally, lest we think this was just a temporary manifestation of what God is like, uh, read the verse here, the last one in Luke 12, the description of the banquet in heaven. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready when he comes. What I'm about to tell you is true. Okay, what is true? The master will then dress himself so he can serve them. He will have them take their places at the table and he will come and wait on them. And can you imagine uh, arriving at the wedding feast in heaven and who is your waiter but God? I mean, wouldn't you want to say like Peter, you know, don't wash my feet. You can't serve me. But here we have the description in this parable of arriving in heaven and it is God who is serving us. So I think the ideal comes through again and again and again that this is what God wants. And again, in our position as healthcare professionals, when you live that life out in service, it is ultimately to say something about, I believe God is like this and I want to show it by the way I am now going to treat you. All right, let's pray and then I hope we can talk a little bit. <clears throat> Dear Father, how impressed we are with what you were like, and that you, despite having all the power in the universe, 
and how we might be tempted to use that power to coerce and to force, but you, it would seem, use your power to love, to serve, and ultimately to win us to your side by your kindness and great love. Help us to live our lives out that way as well. Amen. All right. Any comments or anything that uh, people wanted to discuss? Boy, for me, that, that just resonates as being right on because I think our picture of God determines so much of the way we are. If we imagine God to be punishing, harsh, severe, a tyrant, um, you know, our, our own character will never elevate above our own, you know, picture of God. And so I think that ultimately is the basis. But I think our work in becoming humble people is not to work at I'm going to be a humble person and with gritting my teeth, I'm going to be humble. Um, I think our work is to, I mean, eternal life is to know God. To know means in an intimate, personal, relational way. Our work is to be in a trusting, healing relationship with God. And I think if we are, it is an unavoidable consequence, unavoidable consequence that we become like Him in character. And so I think at the root of it is our own kind of relationship with God. Yeah. I struggle with the same thing because that's just who we are. Yeah. I think at its roots, again, for me, it is, uh, this did not become a quality that for me was something that I admired that much. I have to say, very honestly, uh, until I began to see that God is like this. And I think when we are just so uh, in admiration that this is the way our God is. And that we see, you know what, these principles, uh, they actually do work. This is the way that leads to health and to healing when it makes sense. Um, then I think when we see that as how we would like to be and we're looking at our God at the same time, I think that it is something that happens. By truly beholding. By beholding, we become changed. You look at the disciples, the whole way through, Jesus' life, can I be first? Can I be first? The whole way through, Peter, of course, right at the end. And uh, even after the resurrection, uh, just before Jesus goes up in the clouds, the disciples say, now are you going to establish your kingdom? And Jesus must have just said, oh, I cannot believe it. My kingdom is not of this world. Aren't you guys going to get it? Uh, but then you read on a few chapters later in Acts. And when the disciples are brought before the Pharisees and the Pharisees remark, wow, these people have been with Jesus. They, they are acting like Jesus. And so something happened at Pentecost, I think. Uh, I think the recognition ultimately was to sit around and talking and they're realizing, you know what? That, that was actually God who was with us. And that's why all the, like John 1, Mark 1, 1 John 1, they always open up with words like, you know, that person, that was actually God. We didn't really get it at the time. But I think once they internalized that, and uh, you read the life of Paul, how many times he got the 39 lashes and in prison, but singing. Uh, I think once that principle is internalized and we love that it's that way, it can become a part of us. I do have to at least share if we are maybe making some difference out there. But That's, again, how much more can we do? I mean, this is exciting stuff. I, and I think that would be the ideal if yes. someone said, oh, you're from La Melinda. Now, um, I... I, I, I but <laughs> well, but... Um, 
Now, I had an experience in uh, Philadelphia. This was a long time ago, and uh, uh, this was actually in writing national board questions, but a person there on the committee uh, said, oh, you're a Seventh-day Adventist. Um, now, what is it you guys believe about cheese? And I'm trying to remember. Um, you know, that, that was the only, the only thing that he could remember about Seventh-day Adventism. Now, I think we have incredible things to say about health. That's an important part. But I think if we were going to pick one thing that when someone says Seventh-day Adventist, I associate it with this. It would be uh, Seventh-day Adventist, uh, you guys have a unique picture of God. Uh, that's, uh, or you have this, uh, this service thing. I mean, it would be, that would be the one thing that I'd want to be known for. I mean, if you look at Christ's ministry and everything he talked about and did, uh, and I don't now if I could just bring up for myself, we talk about specifics, but understanding that the specifics do involve service. Uh, as a neurologist, um, I always have to examine feet because you check reflexes down there, you check sensation down in the feet, mm-hmm. and it has recently, you know, occurred to me that you know if you have someone 80 years old and you say, could you take your shoes and socks off? Uh, sometimes that's a task, just to bend over and uh, uh, as a little, you know, it's just something that I remember now that if, if someone that maybe has some difficulty to be quick down to help take the shoes and socks off. It's a very, very small thing. But that very small thing, I think, can convey an attitude about the, you know, the type of service that you're trying to offer. Yes? Oh, no, I was going to say, uh, uh, and, and basically right. that I think so. I I love, if you read uh, the end of Romans 2, Paul describes the Gentiles, the heathen, who know nothing of the law, uh, but yet they will be in the kingdom because they have responded to what they knew. They responded to the voice of God in nature. And that light that they had, they've responded to, and it shows by their actions. And so I think it is, uh, and it should be, a shocking I think, discovery for us to read about the people who Jesus came to in his day, people who were going to church, keeping the Sabbath, paying tithe. Uh, Jesus said, you study or you search the scriptures. Uh, They had aggressive mission campaigns, but he said, you you know, send missionaries throughout the world. And when you win one, you make him twice a convert of hell as you yourself are. So these people externally were doing great things. But what did all of those external things for those people, they hated Jesus when he came and they crucified him and they rushed home on Friday night to keep the Sabbath. So, what's important? All of those externals are important, but they're important when we have the internals, which is God is like this. We know God. We have a relationship with him. We trust him. And then all of those externals that I just mentioned then become a wonderful reflection of the kind of person that our God is. The externals alone, devoid of the relationship with the true God, uh, we can actually become God's enemies in the process. Yeah, but yeah. how do we how do we teach uh, humility? I think is a is a great question because if we only talk about the system, so that it is a different place from all the others. Well, that's why I like so much that right up to the end of his life, where disciples are bickering, I want to be first. Judas has betrayed him. That instead of standing up in the upper room. And Jesus making a statement, look, be humble. Come on, serve. Um, instead, he just knelt down and he washed their feet. So I think ultimately uh, it has to come from actions like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right on. And, and he said, um, the kingdom is among you. 
And he said, the kingdom is within you. How do you have a kingdom within someone? I think a kingdom within is just what we're talking about here. The kingdom within is that we now live in this way. Now, there is a physical kingdom in heaven and all that, but to have a kingdom within is that we have adopted God's principle and his way of living. I think there was another hand there. Yeah. Call himself a fool for Christ. And uh, that passage that you mentioned is very, very challenging to us because it included Jesus saying, you know, if one of the occupation force makes you carry his pack for one mile, carry it two miles. Okay, now just apply that to your own life. Uh, is that foolishness? Um, let's say uh, you're a resident or a medical student and the person that you are working for unfairly puts on you work. You know, it's your superior, but puts extra work on you. And let's say you not only do that, but you go on and double it. Okay, is that foolish? Um, now, most would say yes. But what, if, what effect does that have on your superior? See, I think this is where this foolish life, I don't think it is foolish. It is foolish to some. But I think actually lived out, um, it can have a powerful effect. And, and I think some of the medical students have heard me give this illustration before. But um, think of a, like a parking situation, which at Loma Linda, you know, is uh, complex, right? And uh, what, uh, what do we want? We want the place that is closest up front. And we will elbow and I want, you know, uh, access to this parking lot. And I imagine how it works at, at most places is there are certain people who will get the parking here. Because of their position, they'll get the most favored parking places. But now just imagine if it worked this way. This would be sound foolish. But imagine if we decided we're going to do it this way, where the people at the top say, you know what? I think uh, those doctors, they work so hard, such long hours. Let's, let's give them the places right up front. And the doctors say, um, you know what, where would we be without the nurses, right? I mean, they support, they do everything for us. We are going to give up our place here up at the front. We'll let the nurses have a place right up the front. And the nurses said, you know, the medical students, they're in such debt, it is ridiculous. They should have the best place up front. And it goes right on down the line until finally you have a, um, let's say, a janitor who just came out of prison two months ago and is on the janitorial staff who has given the place the favored parking place. All right, sounds foolish, but what effect would that have on the janitor? Um, I think that that janitor would either say, these people are crazy at Loma Linda and I am going somewhere else. This is just nuts. Or just maybe he would be completely won over to this way. And uh, you see how it works. What sounds foolish, I think, can make perhaps our most powerful statement um, about God and can be this sweet fragrance of knowledge of God that would win many hearts and souls. But I think also the transformation that it does in our own selves is even greater than in the long run. There's where the great struggle comes in and Paul says, you know, the good that I would like to do, I don't do and all of this. But we are just naturally so threatened when someone puts us down in, in some way. It is just the most natural thing to we will then condemn and put down that other person. And why do we do that? Because we are feeding self we now put down that person either in our own mind or condemn them to other people. And in doing so, my own self is restored back up to a comfort level. So to live in a way where we are not always trying to build up self and self by putting others down is, is to live in a way that is not 
the way the world of politics or governments or any other uh, industry that you can think of. And we look at the, the value that our culture places on what we do instead of who we are, mm -hmm. then it, it really works against this whole thing about humility and about even personal traits. I think the mistake is to say that humility and meekness is weakness. It is not weakness. It is the greatest power. I mean, Gandhi said, uh, only a powerful man can truly forgive. Um, I think that, that to live in this way, it comes from power, but it is not power as we tend to think of power, which is oppression, force, coercion. Those are not at all the principles of God's kingdom. So Jesus' weakness and humility came from the one who had all the power, the one who could snap and there's a universe. So that, that comes from power. Good lessons for foreign policy. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. All right, yes. I'm going to pat your question because I don't know if you can measure the people who go through it. Yeah. Well, I could just say that for myself personally, it was uh, in a Bible study group like this. It was doing book by book Bible study and doing this for several years, really, before uh, some of this started to sink in. And that's why for the medical students, why I have this weekly Bible study. And, and I think within the first two years, we'll be able to consistently get through the whole Bible, not going line by line, but the big picture. What does it say about God? Um, because I think with that, I think that should be formal. I mean, if I were just choosing, ideally, that formal curriculum for everyone is, okay, we're going to have a Bible study and in two years, we're just going to talk and work our way through the Bible because I think those principles come out and they're so appealing when they're, they're described in this way. So, um, again, I think that it can't just be effort in that way. It has to be, boy, we want to connect everyone up to the source of humility. And, uh, and then I hope, you know, there would be some, some reformation. I think, yes. I can just say I would have a hard time uh, with any specific person saying, you are not living out in this way. And therefore, you know, and I'm just speaking from my own experience because I know uh, when I was a neurology resident, there was a, faculty person who was my mentor um, who who did very much put down patients and make fun at times and so on. And at that time, um, and I'm just being very honest here, it did not rub me the wrong way. All right, It wasn't until sometime later that for myself this became a part of who I am. And so um, I think uh, for everyone, even you know, attending that you see maybe who is not living in the ideal way, that uh, that person needs a reformation, but it can happen. And so I think even at the student level, uh, if this is happening and we see, uh, boy, there's excitement and there are groups meeting and talking about this, uh, that that can expand and that uh, maybe the students went over the faculty uh, in some cases. I don't know. But, but uh, hearts and minds can be changed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think the most striking thing is when you see someone, your mentor, the top surgeon at Loma Linda or whatever, and you work with that person and you say, you know, wow, I mean, he is the most gentle, humble, kind, loving person, but yet strong. And, uh, you know, this is the, the person at the top. And when the person at the top is like that, um, well, that, that trickles down, I think, through everyone else. But yeah, I, I think prayer would be very important.
you know, the actions always speak louder than the words. Um, I've actually seen cases where uh, a doctor has, in a rather rude way, had an interaction with a patient for 30 minutes and then suggested that we should pray at the end of that. And uh, that can, can be quite a quite a turnoff. Yeah, <laughs> that can be quite a turnoff. But um, you know, if you're serving and exhibiting all the right character qualities all the way through, then you're in an opportunity to say something good about God. Right. Right. <laughs> well, are you trying to get the top score because, um, boy, I want to serve in the right way so badly. I want to be the most competent physician so that I can make the right decisions and cure these problems so badly that I am motivated to study. Uh, I guess there would be a way to be motivated to rise to the top for you know the right reasons. Yes. Right. I like the community aspect of it that you described because I think that's very important. None of us live up to this ideal. It can be, I think, somewhat of a turnoff to hear this message and to look inside and to say, you know what, I am really not living that way. And so I think uh, almost like a 12-step program or something, we're all alcoholics in the sense of this addiction to self-centeredness. And so I think if we came together... I don't know what you'd call a club. Uh, you can't call it a the humility, the humble club, or something. But, uh, but you know that wouldn't. Uh, but you know something like that, where where a group would come together, and to share not only this is what worked, but uh, boy, I was a disaster today with the way I handled the situation. But where there was some kind of a supporting network of people who see this as the ideal, who would like to see this more well known and practiced as the ideal. Uh, we're not meant to do this alone. It should happen in a network, in a community. Um, so I think that would be a great thing if, if something like that happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the other thing that uh, in one book, uh, It's interesting when you read through the life of Jesus. There's one point where the people are saying, right there in Jesus' presence, uh, won't the Messiah be from the lineage of David? Won't the Messiah be born in Bethlehem? This is not the Messiah. And you expect Jesus to turn around and say, hey, hold on, here's my ancestry right here. And I was born there, by the way. Uh, But he doesn't do that, um, which is kind of shocking. And when you think about the the temptations of Jesus, uh, the temptations from beginning to end were to use self. Turn these stones into bread. If, If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. That's not much of a temptation for us. I'm not tempted to change a stone into bread. For Jesus, having the power, it was a temptation in the sense that I am now going to use self. Yes, I am the Son of God. And watch, I'm going to do this. Um, Or the Pharisees, if you're the Son of God, show us a miracle. Um, On the cross, if you're the Son of God, come down, then we'll believe in you. Every temptation all the way through was to live in the way our world operates. It was to live in the self-centered way. And Jesus, every single opportunity, not once did he give in to that. At every single choice, he lived in the other-centered way. And so I'm not so concerned. Now, this is uh, maybe easy to say, but I think the ideal is I don't want to live in a way where I am other-centered, other-centered, humble. But here I see a chance. Well, now here's an advantage for me. I'm going to live temporarily in this other way because it gives me some advantage. And in the long run, it'll be good. No, I want to, at every choice, live in a way that is other-centered. I think that's the ideal. Um, Best interests and not yourself. 
Right. Absolutely. And I think uh, the, the reason that um, I don't feel very often like I'm in a position to stand up and say, you are of your father the devil, um, you know, is because uh, um, now Jesus, of course, you know, could he read the hearts and the minds of the people? And of course, here he's seeing all the people who believe. Here are the Pharisees. They're the teachers of the law. Even the disciples were obviously, you know, you offended the Pharisees when you said that. Um, Jesus had to make a split and say, look at these people. What What is their worship? They are ultimately about me first. Pride. I want to sit up on the front row. They wanted all the people to watch what kind of was a Pharisee. And so he had to, again, reading the hearts and the minds of those people before him, he had to make a split. Um, it is hard for me to read the heart and mind of someone and to make such a hard call uh, statement like that. But even the story you mentioned, um, what happened before that is Jesus fed the 5,000. And remember, they were so impressed by that, they wanted to make him king. All right? Now, he knew that the people that wanted to make him king only wanted to make him king because they were so impressed with the miracle. So what does he do? He gives them a very hard saying. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, um, and who can... That's a hard saying. Now, it's true. Um, but that turned them all away. And so, again, their, their attempt to put Jesus up as the king of an earthly kingdom, he pretty much you know, put, put a squash on that by his comment there. Um, but no, I think it is very much to live in a bold way, uh, but the bold way is usually the humble, you know, and, and I think uh, uh, there have been few times where I have felt compelled to make such a hard statement in my to someone. Yes. Right? The greatest miracle almost of Jesus to me is when the Pharisees brought this woman caught in adultery. And of course, she is expecting to be stoned. And uh, Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Now, where's the miracle there? Um, she had a new heart and a new spirit, a right spirit, because of the great kindness of Jesus, which was revealed to her. That's, that's the most spectacular. That's greater than any physical miracle. But on, on what you said, also, notice how he treated the Pharisees that brought her. Now, why didn't he just stand up and say, you? Uh, you were in uh, Atlanta, and I know you committed adultery with this woman on such and such a date. Um, he could have done that, but how did he do it? He knelt down, he wrote with his finger in the dirt, and who would see what was written in the dirt? You know, the oldest left first. And I'm assuming he wrote down something very specific that revealed something about them, and a few people walk around, a little dust, and it's all gone, right? So this is how our God chooses to reprove. He does not want to embarrass and humiliate. He wants to privately, and who knows, maybe those people thought about it later after the cross and said, man, he read my mind and he didn't embarrass me. This is how he did it. That is incredible. So I think um, even you know, our God very rarely does he do something like say, you are of your father the devil. And I think even when he did, there were tears in his voice. You know, we, we sometimes miss as we read the words on the page how they were said. But that and in so many other places re reveals to me that the ideal way that God reproves is he wants to do it in such a way that does not destroy us, but will bring us to him primarily because we see how kind and how good he is. Okay, thank you. <laughs>